You're listening to the Automotive Analyst Series, a podcast by Red Blue Capital. I'm your co-host, Prescott Watson, and along with my partner, Olaf Sackers, we're interviewing the researchers behind the buy, sell, and hold calls that drive the news cycle. Each episode, we're opening up the floor to an analyst that covers our space and looking for a broader, behind-the-scenes look at what's going on. For highlights, show notes, and to find more episodes of this and other Red Blue Capital podcasts, visit us online at news.red.blue. I'm Olaf. In this episode, we speak with Dan Levy, Senior Equity Research Analyst covering autos at Credit Suisse. We dive into how the automotive industry has changed from being a purely cyclical business to one in which secular trends are coming to define and change the way in which car companies are understood and evaluated. We unpack Dan's two clocks analogy as a tool for evaluating both the near term and the long term for automotive companies. Tesla and the rise of electrification has reshaped the industry. We discuss specific examples of, of how companies like Aptive, General Motors and Ford are leveraging narrative to explain both the near term of how they are maintaining their businesses and the long term of how they are preparing for the transition and opportunities that lie ahead. Dan is full of insight and energy and we very much enjoyed the conversation. Let's jump in. You've been in the industry for now well over a decade. You've seen multiple cycles. What are the biggest changes in the equity analyst market in the automotive space? When I started, the, the typical way that you would assess auto stocks was cycle, right? Automotive stocks, automotive companies are, are, are cyclical companies. And so essentially at its core, you're calling where you are in the cycle. Early part of the cycle, favorable, you get to the top of a cycle, maybe not the greatest, and then the bottom part of the cycle, not so good. As one longtime former autos analyst told me, if you knew something idiosyncratic like Borg Warner makes turbochargers, then that, that's like an incredible amount of value add. But really at its core, automotive equity research was a cyclical call. There's two, there's two ways to look at a cyclical stock, right? There's the earnings, and then there's the multiple that we put on that. So calling a cycle is really calling an earnings level, right? Because automotive companies that are generating their earnings based on primarily the, the volume that's produced, light vehicle production volumes, these are companies with a relatively high amount of fixed cost operating leverage. So... When you have a favorable cycle environment, when you have industry volumes rising, that does two things. One is it increases your revenue, but on top of that, you get the operating leverage as well that helps your margins. And so what that adds up to is a positively inflecting earnings profile, right? And so when your earnings are coming up, that's the earnings part of price to earnings, right? And then the market determines what type of multiple to put on that. Now let's go to the multiple part for a second, right? So historically, the way that you would look at a company, especially a mature set of companies, you would look at their long-term trading history and you would say, okay, historically these companies have traded in such and such a band of trading multiple. And you would make a call and you'd say, okay, well, I think based on the current set of industry dynamics, they should trade at the top or the bottom or at the average. Right? So that was historically how you would determine the multiple. I think what we've seen in the last handful of years, I mean, I think this started really, you know, call it six years ago, and it's really only accelerated since then, and especially over the past two years, is weaving in 
this secular component that automotive companies can't just be assessed on where they are in the cycle, but also what their secular opportunity is. You know, can they outpace the market? Is there secular risk? Is there a transition that they have to manage through? I think that's really changed the way that we look at these companies and how they are perceived in the market. What we've seen happen since then is all of a sudden companies that have a stronger growth profile, right? So we're not talking just about the earnings opportunity in the next 12 to 24 months, but something beyond that, maybe three years out or five years out, or more recently in the last two, three years, it's the earnings profile in the next 10 plus years, all of a sudden that's moving its way into the multiple. And so companies that have better opportunities to grow over the next decade have been seen a much richer multiple. Converse, any company that faces risk, you know, three, five, 10 years out has seen a discount on that multiple because people don't want to own companies where there's some sort of a transition risk or a risk that the earnings profile over time will diminish. So I think that's definitely changed the way that we look at companies. Again, like it, it used to be very simple. You just say, okay, like earnings are inflecting positively because there's more volume that's coming in. Margins are going to be better. And, and that was it. And I think it's completely changed the way that we look that it's more than just that now. Now we have to assess, you know, how companies are looking at longer term transitions. Narrative has been a heavily powerful force in driving how companies are casting themselves. One thing you mentioned is the, the importance of narrative. How has the shift towards storytelling and this broader shift in the way analysts are, are covering these stocks affected how companies themselves are positioning themselves, talking about themselves? Narrative is extremely critical. I think this is probably a good opportunity to talk about the framework that I've used. And the framework is what I call two clocks. This was from an old Ford presentation back in 2016 or 2017, when they had a regime change in which they said, Ford faces three distinct clocks, a near, a medium, and a far, right? And we have to manage on each of those clocks. And I said, well, wait a second, this actually applies to pretty much every company in the automotive industry. And what I mean by, but let's simplify it, let's say just two clocks, okay? Is that everyone can be assessed on whether you have a near and a far. So the near would be, you know, what's your near-term earnings profile? Matching supply to demand, making sure that your factories are running today, that your supply chain today is intact, that you're doing all the things to generate profit and to take care of the products that you have in the market today. The far is the long-term opportunity. It's a transition, it's EVs, it's autonomous, right? And so automotive companies all can be assessed on this framework. You can be Ford and GM or an automaker and have a near-term earnings profile from combustion vehicles, but then also have a long-dated opportunity that you have to transition to electric vehicles and software and autonomous, right? And there's a balancing act. You could be a seating company that you know, a seat, you know, generally today is the same as it was yesterday, as it'll be the same tomorrow, one clock. So just match the supply and demand. Or you could be Tesla that really only has one clock. Every vehicle that it sells today furthers its long-term vision, as opposed to a legacy automaker that every combustion vehicle they sell today 
they have to figure out in the future, you know, what they're doing with that, because obviously one day they will no longer be selling that vehicle. And so when we think about narrative, that fits in perfectly because every company out there is trying to show or cast a light on why the long-term opportunity for them is bright, why they have secular tailwinds, why it's not just about the next one or two years, but it's about how they're positioned three, five, 10 years out. And so everyone is trying to pitch a narrative. Tesla is the ultimate version of narrative. I think you asked how have things changed. When I started looking at stocks, I used to look more strictly at the valuation range and say, okay, like this is historically how something changed. I love the fundamentals. I love what's going on, but it's, it's rich. And I think what we found is, especially over the last few years, don't let rich narrative be disrupted by valuation. Narrative will always win out. Now, sometimes that's at, at an extreme, right? And that's, I think, our job as a fundamental analyst is to find out, okay, at what point is the valuation an extreme? There's always a point where it can be an extreme. But narrative has been a heavily powerful force in driving how companies are casting themselves. Putting narrative aside for a moment, when you look at the fundamental situation that companies find themselves in today, what are the problems that legacy car makers have making the transition, balancing clock one and clock two? Let's just take companies like Ford and GM. Actually, more than 100% of their, of their profit is being generated by combustion vehicles. It's not 100, it's more than 100. In some cases, they may have EVs that are in the market that, are, that aren't generating margins, right? So combustion vehicles account for all of these companies' profits. And I think we know it's, it's, it's pretty clear at this point, the train is leaving the station, that's it. We're going to an EV world. And so now the question is, in the case of EV, it's what is your ability to sell a brand new product, right, to transition? And there's a number of challenges that they have to figure out. I mean, you're still selling a vehicle at its core, but, you know, the, the cost structure is completely different. You know, how you vertically integrate the supply chain is completely different. There's a giant question on manufacturing, right? Combustion vehicles, just under half of the manufacturing footprint are engine and transmission plants. Those go away in an EV world. So there's a very, you know, political or, or, or social component to this. There's a distribution question that your distribution previously was linked to combustion vehicles through the sales and, 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 and through the service and maintenance. So all of those things need to be changed. And organizationally, these companies were all geared around combustion vehicles. So all of those things change in an EV world. Software, right? We're going from vehicles that were much more mechanically driven to these are software-defined vehicles. In fact, Olaf, I, I think back to the, the article that you published two years ago that talked about the creation or the shift towards software-defined vehicles. And that's another giant trend. And then, you know, possibly what's going to be the most disruptive of them all, but which is maybe further long, long dated is autonomous, right? Because, and, you know, I, I know that there is some debate about, you know, when that plays out, will it play out? But if it does play out, right, you think about automotive, back to one of my earlier comments, this is a business with high fixed costs, with a lot of operating leverage. So volume needs to be at a certain level for these companies to be profitable. 
And if all of a sudden we're talking about a complete shift in the way that people are consuming vehicles and, you know, the ownership dynamics completely change, that we go from, you know, just over two vehicles per household now to one vehicle per household. If that changes, then these companies have a completely different business model. Back to that two clocks analogy, the, the real challenge for these companies is how do you balance that? How do you concurrently balance managing a business today, which by the way, is extremely challenging given all of the supply chain issues and could be just enough to completely encompass all these companies' efforts and resources and focuses alongside this very heavy investment cycle and shift to how do we reposition the business in the future. I think a key observation is that Tesla is the long clock. I mean, it's one clock, it's the long term, right? And to some extent, everybody else's narrative is defined almost in relation to Tesla's. Which companies are you excited about? And what are the stories they're telling to excite you? I'll start with Aptiv. Aptiv is a tier one part supplier. So what, what that means is they sell components to the automakers, right? Aptiv has two segments. And I think you could think of uh, what they've pitched. And I think this gets to the crux of narrative is if you ask me what their segment structure is, it's signal and power solutions and uh, active safety and user user experience, which is you know the old segments they used to have. They, they used to call it uh, electrical architecture and electronics and safety. But really what they say, this gets to the narrative piece, is it's, it's the brain and the nervous system of the vehicle. So what is electrical architecture? Maybe the less sexy way of saying it, it's the wiring harnesses, it's the junction boxes, it's the connectors, right? doesn't sound very, very sexy, but you actually need an electrical architecture to enable some of these megatrends, right? A more software-defined vehicle requires a more complex electrical architecture. Electric vehicles require a more complex electrical architecture. So that's the nervous system. The brain is their electronics and safety segment. That's active safety. It's, it's infotainment. It's body and security, right? So it's the, uh, the electronic and you know, maybe some of the more software-defined components. And actually, more recently, they did a software acquisition, a company called WindRiver, in which you know, they're trying to go after some of the software content that's in, in the vehicle. And so this is where we get into narrative, right? It's a company that shows that in addition to putting up the numbers, and they've put up good numbers, right? So you know, typically, Companies that do well in the market are companies that put up earnings beats or c consistently exceed expectations. That helps, but you marry that with a, with a narrative. Why is it that they're putting up earnings beats or that they constantly can raise their guidance or say, okay, we're constantly positively revising our, our three-year outlook? And that's because there is a narrative that it's connected to a secular trend. People are going to feel much better about buying a stock that they can see, okay, oh, it's very obvious there's more electric vehicles. It's very obvious the software-defined vehicle, you know, this notion that the, the, the vehicle of the future is a, is a computer on wheels, right, that Aptid is playing into those trends. So that's a, a core example of how narrative has shaped a company. But take a step back. Aptiv is particularly interesting in part because it used to not just be the cool stuff. Explain the history with Delphi and kind of how you saw why they decided to split the companies. And maybe talk through that from the perspective of the two clocks. It's actually a, a great example. The backstory, and this, this actually gets to how these companies used to be structured, is historically tier one suppliers were 
more married to the automakers. And in some cases, there was a higher level of vertical integration within the companies. So Aptive, which actually it was the old Delphi automotive, actually Delphi used to be part of General Motors many, many years ago. This was a company that used to have something, they said something like 120 product lines. They sold everything. So tier one suppliers, right? You know, you're talking about what, what's the range of a tier one supplier? A supplier could be a company that sells literally only one or two components. They maybe only have a couple customers, or you could have these mega suppliers, right? The challenge with being a mega supplier where you sell, you know, many different components, right? Anything ranging from steering wheels to airbags to suspension products to you name it, you know, chassis, body, is that it's, it's a bit harder to tie the narrative together, right? It's the, what's, your, what's your focus or your specialty? So Delphi was a very large supplier that really didn't have a specialty. They went into bankruptcy and they narrowed the product, the number of product lines from 120 down to something like 30, down to four segments. And then not only that, that they came out of a bankruptcy, they IPO'd in 2011. And then after that, they continued to further refine the portfolio. They got rid of the thermal segment. And then really the big step forward was they, they saw when they were getting more and more questions on you know, the transition to an EV world and how does your powertrain business, you know, the segment that's supplying components to engines, what does this do in an EV world when the, all the engines go away? You know, and they, they spun it off. It was, and it was really perfect timing. And so this was a company that knew, okay, yes, we have to continue to beat numbers. And so actually, if you look at their earnings profile over the years, it went up materially. So what I say is like, they IPO'd at roughly $30 Delphi before the spin of powertrain was at one point $100. How did they get there back to the PE piece? The earnings piece doubled, right? And the multiple also increased because not only were they continuing to generate the earnings, but people started to perceive them in more and more of a positive light. And so they went across that journey and really actually that was only the start once they got to the powertrain spin and they went from being Delphi to active is they started to cast, okay, well, you thought we had nothing to do with electric vehicles. This is why we're actually exposed to electric vehicles. You didn't think we had much to do in autonomous. We're actually forming a JV with Hyundai. And so this is a company that has gone from, yes, we need to continue to meet earnings. And by the way, the importance of, of in this two clocks analogy, it's not only so that you can do well on earnings today, but if you're funding the future, it's a lot easier to do it organically, right? So that's why you have to do well on earnings today so that you can generate the cash flows to fund your future investment. And at the same time, they did a very good job showing that, hey, you're getting strong execution today. And yes, it's it's very cycle dependent. You know, the last, call it 12 months have been choppy, but they've been choppy for everyone. But you also get an opportunity for future growth from all of these other product lines that are levered to megatrends. What was the first earnings call you were on? Or what was the first kind of moment that you said, hey, uh, people are starting to trade not based off of sort of the cycle and who's calling the cycle, but rather they're starting to say, are these companies going to be around? Or is this company going to be 10x bigger, which is something you didn't really see before? Like, what was that first moment that happened in the industry for you? I think the best example of this is Tesla, right? I think Tesla for automotive analysts has always been, this is a very different business than what we've experienced in the, in the past. Historically, 
we evaluated companies that were all mature companies, right? We were figuring out where industry volumes were and saying, okay, based on that level of industry volumes, this is the type of earnings that you would generate. And maybe you would layer in, in some cases, oh, there's an element of growth on top of this, right? There were some companies back to 2012, 2013. I think of, you know, like uh, a company like Harman, for instance, which was acquired by by, by Samsung. Harman, I think, was like really one of the early ones that did that well. Borg Warner was another company that historically was putting up really good numbers, and they did a very good job of marrying that outperformance with, well, the reason why we're doing this is because all of these regulators are putting up stricter fuel efficiency or fuel economy standards, and our products enable those, you know, the ability to meet those standards. Yeah, but that, that and, secular thing was relatively calm. It was kind was, of like every year there's 5% more of this, and you're saying Tesla was just like a total out of left field. Well, it's also interesting so, as, as a side point that it was Borg Warner that acquired Aptiv's spin out, um, Delphi Technologies, which was the old powertrain. Which actually worked out very well for them at the end. Yeah, it's it's interesting to see those new efficiencies created. But But even a company like Borg Warner or or Harman, these were still mature companies. You go to Tesla, I think it's important to know what happened prior to late 2019 when the stock really went parabolic. You had people that very vehemently believed that this company uh, would do really well, that this company was disrupting the automotive industry. And they put up some of those data points here and there, but you know the earnings was not so great. People had a lot of pushback. They were getting a lot of whatever earnings they had from regulatory credits. A common pushback on Tesla was actually if you take out the generation of those regulatory credits where they would basically sell the, the credit value to another automaker so they could meet their regulatory efficiencies, they actually were losing money. So there was a, a, a very stark contrast or there was a very sharp debate between people who really believed in the long-term opportunity and you know maybe they got it here and there versus people who honestly believed that this company was not worth that much at an extreme there were people that believed that tesla was a zero at an extreme there were some people that believed that hashtag tesla q was the tesla q tesla q yeah and so this was the debate that you had so how did narrative play out, right? And if we look at, and this is something we published in our research, we were looking at 2020, okay? What was really interesting about Tesla stock in 2020 is this is a company that ended the year at something like, it was like a 700% return. What's perhaps more interesting though is just the sheer amount of market cap accumulation, right? Is that in 2020, it, I think it was something like six or $700 billion of market cap accumulated to Tesla, which I think uh, at the time- That was were, more than the automotive. In 2007, like the, all automotive industry was like 500 billion market cap yeah. total. Yes. Right? Yeah, it yeah, just yeah, doubled yeah. the whole size of the industry. Yes, yeah. in one year. Right, and I think that, that you know, w- what was really interesting about that is I said, back to this question of price earnings, right? So recognizing that, and it's not a perfect exercise, but recognizing, okay, how much did the fundamentals get better? Yeah, the fundamentals got better, right? Like the earnings outlook improved for Tesla. But when you look at that and we said, okay, what was the, the 20, 2022 was like the furthest out that we had like good quality consensus data. The earnings forecast over the course of 2020 for 2022 estimates, right? How much did that increase? It was like a 50% increase. 
the multiple, right? And again, a number of ways you can cut it. The growth was good, but there's just essentially not, it was nothing compared to the multiple. It was 50% good, not 700% good, right? That's what you saw happen to Tesla. And I think this gets to this notion that the market was fixated on narrative and became very heavily fixated on narrative. And companies that checked all the boxes, which Tesla was an extreme, growth, disruption, decarbonization, charismatic CEO, right? It checked every box. And now you have a company that, yeah, the earnings, I mean, to their credit, earnings were better. And I think that was the thing that, that changed is that prior to 2019, it, there, were some, there were some dark days for Tesla. People are very quick to forget that in early 2019, there were questions about demand they were having question. They were having issues on on supply, high yield, which is you know the bonds is is typically a way that we look at the health of a company. You know how the bond market looks at a company, and I think in early 2019, Tesla bonds were trading at 83 cents on the dollar. It's distressed territory, and so people seriously doubted their ability to generate earnings, generate cash. So to their credit, things have fundamentally improved. That the Shanghai factory, in my opinion over the last two years was the largest fundamental improvement. It completely altered the margin profile for them, and it also drove essentially all of their volume growth. That fundamental improvement was married in 2020 alongside a much larger emphasis by the market on narrative. What are some interesting ways in which other car makers have responded? Are there any that are telling a story that isn't just an echo of Tesla's story? Tesla is is the market leader in EVs. They, they are the market leader in EVs. They have 20% market share. And perhaps the more shocking piece is the margin component that now this is the company, this is the automaker that's generating the highest margins. And they've done this now for a few quarters, right? So that's maybe the more shocking or surprising pieces. And I think something that even the bulls themselves didn't anticipate the level of margins that Tesla would reach, at least at this point in time. So. How are, how are companies trying to make that transition? I think we've seen a few things, right? Part of it is over the last few years, EVs went from what I would say was a, you know, a lukewarm commitment, something that, you know, the companies gave lip service to that they said was important, but, you know, they really weren't uh, fully invested. They weren't ready to fully make that transition to okay, we're, we're going to do that, right? And a, a report we just published this morning, I just aggregated, we just aggregated all of the targets, all of the volume targets and all the cash spend. So when companies like Ford and GM, uh, really everyone are all committing tens of billions of dollars. I mean, in aggregate, the entire legacy auto industry has committed something like half a trillion dollars over the next, call it decade. You know, everyone has a different time frame. That's, you know, and we can say, well, you know, wh where is that money going to? But that tells you that this is serious, that there is a very deep commitment to EV. So number one is obviously the, the market made it very clear that decarbonization is a priority and that the auto industry had to lay out a path to electrify and to, to go to zero emission vehicles. And so that's what's underlying, okay, these plans that we're, we're beyond, you know, PowerPoint decks and press releases. We have to see product in the market. We have to see product and we have to start to see volume. 
And so I think more than anything else, it's how these companies are showing that they're actually making the transition. I think there's been maybe a little less focus from the investment community on the software side. Um, autonomous was much more of a question last year. I think that's a longer dated opportunity. There's maybe less focus from the, the market currently. But yeah, you know, two, two clocks, right? At, at its core, if I'm Ford or I'm GM, if I'm Ford and I'm generating all this money from F-150 pickup trucks, or I'm GM and I'm making a vast, vast majority of my profit on Silverado and uh, and Sierra pickup trucks. Cash cows. Cash cows. And I'm, say, I'm saying like disproportionate. I mean, every pickup truck they sell is something like $14,000 of profit versus your standard crossover that's like just a few thousand dollars of profit. So disproportionately profitable and at very high volumes. How do I transition that vehicle that's generating all that profit today to an EV where you know there's easily $20,000 or more of extra cost in there? One of the things that's striking about Tesla is Elon Musk as a personality. When we spoke to Philippe, he talked about Sergio Marchione as a key personality in the industry. Maybe it's interesting to talk about Ford and GM and Jim Farley and Mary Barra as personalities and how that narrative has played out. I think both executives have done extraordinarily well, but in different ways. Mary Barra obviously has been at GM for much longer. She's been at the helm of GM since 2014. What people have to remember was when Mary Barra started as CEO in early 2014, she immediately went into crisis mode because the company faced a very large ignition switch recall. And uh, there must have been something like 30 million vehicles that GM recalled over this ignition switch recall. So she went, you know, fresh into the CEO post having to handle a crisis. And I think what we've seen is over the years, she guided GM through through that period. They all of a sudden started to put up very strong earnings results. And all of a sudden, the company started to position itself uh, as, I would say, a forward-thinking automaker and doing the right things, right? So I think one of the best decisions they ever made was exiting Europe because they exited Europe in early 2017 at the time. The, their Opal business really in what was a good market barely was, was not even profitable. It was, sl- it was a slight loss. And they sold that business to, to Peugeot. And what that did was that an, allowed them to focus purely on North America. I think one of the things broadly that we've seen over the auto industry over the last 10, 15 years, not just amongst automakers, but even across the supply base itself is a shift away from let's be as large as possible. Let's generate as much revenue as possible. Let's be all things to all people to, if I can't make money, I'm not going to do it. I remember talking to Richard Palmer, who was at the time the, the CFO of Fiat Chrysler when GM got out of, uh, out of Opal. And I said, isn't that surprising? You know, the old business school case study is you're in different regions to provide diversification. And his response was something like, what good does it do to diversify into a business if you're never going to make money there, right? So I think there's been a broad realization across the industry that you have to be in businesses or product lines where you can make money, where it's scalable, where you have an edge. And if you're not, get out. And Mary Barra did a very good job. She got GM out of Europe. She was able to focus GM on 
the right product and saying, okay, we're going to you know, really reduce our focus on sedans. They exited some other regions as well. And with that, they were able to increase their focus on EVs, right? So what's back to the two clocks narrative is when I'm doing really well on clock one, when I don't have to worry about my production issues or I don't have execution issues, now all of a sudden I have ability to concurrently focus on clock two and importantly, to route profit to invest into clock two to make that transition. So she did very well repositioning the business so that then they could focus on, okay, how do we go more wholeheartedly into EVs, right? Cruise was another transaction that they did at the time in 2017 that really people didn't know much about. And, and sure enough today, I mean, there are some people out there that think Cruise, you know, could be worth hundreds of billions of dollars. I mean, they're, they're bullish people. But the point is, is that that came from an acquisition that was only a few hundred million dollars that they had the foresight into doing. And it's like an arrow in the quiver of narrative stories you can tell about the stock, which is key for the two clocks. Exactly. And the point of two clocks is when I've got clock one running well, when I'm generating strong profit on my business today, then I'm not distracted and I can route more profit or more cash to invest into clock two and really balance everything concurrently. Ford is an interesting one because Ford really from the period of 2016 to 2019 had a number of missteps. Usually you see a company defined by a key product or a key region. And usually when that product or region or that program does well, the company does well. And interestingly, we look at you know, the 2016, 2019, what's the key product and the key region for Ford? It's North America, it's pickups. Pickups did pretty well during that period. North America, SAR was pretty strong, but you actually saw Ford profit essentially cut in half in that period because of a number of operational missteps, challenges geographically, challenges with execution, challenges with quality. I think the importance of Jim Farley is that he came in or, or he really took the helm during a period of, of COVID when there was a lot of questions about the auto industry as a whole. He studied everything and he said, not only are we turning around the operations today, which they've done a very good job. And I think some of that was getting the returns on decisions that were made some time ago and finally started to pay off. But he said, okay, you know, EVs, for instance, where Ford was um, taking a variety of bets, but none very serious, he doubled down on EVs. He said, we're gonna be much more serious, vertical integration. We're gonna be much more serious about the volume side. And so I think that Jim Farley really repositioned the company to A, have stronger operations, but B, you know, to think much more about that second clock and saying, okay, like we gotta get clock one because if we don't get clock one, it's all irrelevant. But if we get clock one, we generate the profits, we have to think about how we're gonna make this transition. And he did a very good job with that. I think both Jim Farley and Mary Barra have been very good for, for their companies, but you know, they, they played out in different ways. This has been a fascinating conversation. Uh, I think you've really brought to light the the quality of the narratives and not just the kind of overarching structure of the, the two clocks, which I think is a really neat lens for kind of weighing the short term and the long term and how the industry is working. So thank you very much for, for joining us and uh, appreciate the time. Thank you so much, Olaf and Prescott.